As I mentioned, we're going to be starting the study through the book of Colossians, and in the first two verses of Colossians, they're very typical to Paul's uh, opening addresses in his, his letters, but I think it would be unwise if we just skipped over them and went right to verse 3, because I think that there's some, there's some data that we can, we can glean there, but there's some uh, practical truths that we can infer from how Paul chose to start his letters. And so let me read the text before you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, as the word could be translated, in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the living Word of God. You know, we are intrigued by how other people live. I spent three years of my life living in Rhode Island. And in Rhode Island, uh, we lived close to Newport. Because if you live anywhere in Rhode Island, you are close to Newport. The, the, the state is very small. It is 20 miles wide, no, 30 miles wide by 40 miles north and south. That is the entire state. And when we would have guests come, one of the places that we would often take people would be Newport, Newport, Rhode Island. Newport is known for a lot of things. The Tennis Hall of Fame is there. Never went there, but it's there. Um, there's mansions, a lot of mansions in Newport. And that would be some things that we would do. We would go tour uh, one of the mansions. They have the breakers. And, but uh, I, the Marble House is the one that we went to uh, a few times. Now, the Marble House was built for William Vanderbilt, the grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And it was built between 1888 and 1892. And it cost $11 million to build this house. $7 million of the $11 million paid for the marble that was in the house. That's why it's called the Marble House. And literally, almost the entire house is marble. Now, why do people pay money to walk through that house? Well, we are intrigued by how other people live. Because I haven't been to all of your homes yet, but I doubt that there's people in this congregation that have spent $7 million on marble for your house. I'm just guessing, okay? So we are intrigued by how other people live. And so we take tours of, uh, of, uh, of a mansion like that. Or the popular show right now, Downton Abbey. A lot of people are watching this show and are, are caught up in the show. And what is the reason? Because there's different lifestyles in one home. First you have, you have the mansion, you have the, the, the rich, the wealthy living, but then it's a storyline about the servants as well. And so, so we see how other people live. And, and then when I was in countries like Haiti and, and Romania, people would want to take me to their homes so that I could see how they live. And so we are, <coughs> excuse me, we are interested in how people live. And Paul here, I believe in this fir- these first two verses, while it is a standard greeting, I believe that we can get some inference there of how he thought and how he desired the people of God to live. 
And so that is what we are going to be looking at this morning here. First of all, in your outline you see in your bulletin there, the people of God live in the context of a family. I wanted you to see those familial terms that are given there. First of all, he refers to Timothy as our brother. Then he says to the saints and faithful brothers, and I mentioned that that word can be translated brothers and sisters. That's a legitimate translation. And then it says that uh, peace from God our Father. And so in these first two verses, we see that there's this idea of the context of a family. And and then how are they described there? Verse 2, he says, they are saints and faithful brothers. And they're they're all part of this family. And so so what I want us to do is, is, as I was thinking of starting this message and starting this series, I, I started thinking about what is my desire for memorial. And, and, and I know this is true of Wayne, I know this is true of the other leaders, is that we want this community, this, this context right here of Memorial Baptist Church, we want it to be a family. We want it to be a place where we feel safe with each other. We want it to be a place where we love each other and bear one another's burdens. If, if you miss the adult uh, Bible st- uh, study in Sunday school hour, the, the discipleship hour, you missed a, a great discussion that uh, uh, we watched on video as, as David Platt led us about this. And he talked about bearing one another's burdens. And so when you look at these two verses, you see uh, he's just mixing in here these words that have these, these connotations. Now, y- you could say, well, Jeremy, don't read into it too much. I mean, that's just kind of how they talked back then. That's just what they said. Well, but there's a reason for that. Now, now one thing you're going to learn about me is that I firmly believe that words communicate, okay? Words are there for a reason, And we believe, as Christians, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. And that means that every word is inspired by God. And so the reason why we have these words in our text are because God wanted them there. They're not there because they were fillers or because they were just the standard greeting. They were there because they wanted to communicate something to us. And here we see that this idea of family is integrated into the life of a believer. Now, that is very important for us because a lot of times when someone, particularly in this context, when they would convert to Christianity, they would convert and they would actually have to leave their families. Now, here in America, we don't don't see that as, as much. We really have been protected from this. But there are plenty of places in this world today where if you commit to Christ or you convert to Christianity, your families would hold a funeral for you. And what God is saying here, He's saying, look, you have a family. Some of you may feel lonely and isolated. You know, I worked in a, in a senior community for several years while I was bivocational, and I worked in administration of that, that senior retirement community. And the CEO of that community, he used to have a saying that he would always say, he would say, the number one disease that seniors struggle with is loneliness. And I'm, what I wanted us to draw our mind, what I want to draw our minds to this morning is that if you have no roommates in your house, if when you go home after church today and you hear the ticking of a clock and that's it, you still have a family. 
You are part of a community that God has orchestrated and He has placed together here. And so here, in this context here at Memorial, you have brothers and you have sisters and you have people who love you and who we need to show that support for one another. But most importantly, at the end of verse 2, you have a father. Some of you may have, have lost your father. Some of you may have, maybe your father is still alive but you don't have a great relationship with him. Or maybe some of you do have a great relationship with your father. It really doesn't matter. The point is, you have a heavenly father. I mean, passages like Galatians chapter 3 come to mind where, where we go and we cry out, Abba, Father. And so as I look at this text and as we're, we're launching into this Colossian study, I believe that as we, we look at how the family of God or how the people of God ought to live, we live in the context of a family. And that has great practical ramifications. Do we love one another? Do we support one another? Do we put up with one another? When you live in a family, you put up with each other a lot, right? I have two brothers. One is three years older, one is nine years younger. We don't know how the brother who is nine years younger, my older brother and I, we don't know how he turned out even somewhat normal because of the things we did to him. <laughs> and I, you know, I, um, you know, there were things, I mean, because, you know, like I said, I'm nine years older than them, and so I, uh, my parents, I don't know what they were thinking. They must have thought we were, we were better than what we were, but they gave us a lot of leeway with him when they would go away. And, and so, you know, Jason and I, my older brother and I, we look at each other and think, you know, I think Josh needs to go in timeout. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, I think so. All right, Josh, go to timeout. You know? And he'd be like, what? You know? We're family. My brother loves me to this day, my younger brother. Why? I don't know, but he does. <laughs> but we put up with each other, right? We understand there's weaknesses. We understand there's faults. We understand that people do things differently than how we would do it. Our brother, my brother and I, my older brother and I, you're going to meet him probably in a few weeks. He's going to be up here for the installation service. And just look for the person in the room that is the most opposite of me, and that's my brother. We do things completely different, but yet we love each other. In this text here, we have this idea of what Paul is saying, that you are part of a family. And he talks to them, and he says, you are saints. And so we know that he's talking to the believing people there. Now, it's interesting when you think about this word saints there, this idea of holy, but that's where the root word comes from, the same word as holy. It's not necessarily because of their character. Because if you look throughout the Scriptures, you would see that, that places are considered holy, Remember when, when Moses was at the burning bush. You remember this story? Remember when God said to him, and he said, take off your shoes for where you stand is what? Holy ground, right? Okay, and then things were considered holy as well. So not only people were considered holy, but places and things were considered holy. Now what that tells us is that the, the characterization of holy or separated or saint or sanctified does not necessarily talk about the intrinsic value of the person or their character. It talks about their separatedness for the use of God. And so that is why a place can be called holy. Because at this burning bush, at the place where the burning bush was, God said, this is holy because this area I have separated for me right now for this moment to communicate to you. 
That's why places such as the tabernacle or the temple could be considered holy. Not because that the buildings were, and the materials were of, of any greater value it was, or, or of, of better worth. It was because it was separated for the usefulness of God. And so here, when Paul was telling, talking to the Colossians, he was saying, you, my family, you, my brothers and my sisters, you are saints. The reason why you're saints is because in Christ, in Christ, And that is the key. In Christ, you are separated for the use of God. And I want to talk to you in this letter here. And so he goes through and he talks about how that there's, and we're going to see as we go through this book, how that there was a a Colossian heresy, as some people call it, where there was some some unbelief and false teaching that were starting to come in, that Christ wasn't enough, and that that, that Christ wasn't the, the entire answer. And so there was all these different beliefs coming in. And what Paul is saying here to the Colossians, he's saying, look, I want you to know that Christ is preeminent. He is supreme. And he says, you, my brothers, my sisters, you're saints because you have been separated for the work of God, you and that church at Colossae. And he calls them faithful in that text as well, does he not? He says, my faithful brothers, in the context of a family, we need to be faithful. In the context of a family, we need to be dependable. We need to be counted on. You know, faithful family members show up to the events that they don't feel like going to. Have you ever had a family event that you just didn't want to go to, but you went anyway? Some of you are like, no. (laughs) Well, faithful family members show up to those events. I remember as a kid, you know, you get to that age when you're a teenager where you're kind of too cool for your family. We would do this family reunion every summer. I remember just not wanting to go, and I remember my parents telling me, no, this is a family event, you're going. Sometimes we don't feel like coming to church. Sometimes we don't feel like meeting together. Sometimes we don't feel like meeting one another's needs. But if we're really part of a family, and this is, this is my passion for Memorial, is that we are a family. We're going to show up. And we're going to help one another out. We're going to bear one another's burdens. Here's the application of this, is that if we're going to be in the family of God, if we're going to be a people of God, we need to recognize that we have we are part of a family. Now, being part of a family has great privilege. I understand the Schultz here have a secret handshake, the Schultz secret handshake that, that not even Grandma Cindy knows, okay, because she's not a Schultz, okay? Being part of the Schultz is great privilege, okay? You know the, you know the secret handshake. Being in Christ brings great privilege, If you want to study what it means to be in Christ, go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we see all the blessings that we have in Christ that we're part of the family. But being being part of a family also brings great responsibility. That means we love one another. That means we, we bear one another's burdens. We care for one another. We weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Have you ever stopped to consider it's a lot easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice? It's a lot easier for us to, to look at someone's um, their misfortune or the bad things that are happening and weep with them. But when someone gets that promotion or someone gets that blessing that you want it, it's a lot harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. But being part of the family says we're happy for each other. You know, we struggled for, for many years in our marriage by, by being barren and not able to have children. And, you know, my sister-in-law... She would feel guilty because, I mean, I mean, she had no problems there. I mean, it was almost like my brother would look at her and she would get pregnant. So, 
um, she, she kind of, she, 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 I remember her feeling almost guilty and coming to us, and, and almost like when they told us they were expecting their fourth child, almost like, almost with an apologetic tone to it. And we were like, no, no. But I got to admit, it is difficult. Some of you may be here, and you're struggling with your barrenness. Or maybe some of you here, you're struggling with the job and being content where you're at. Or maybe some of you are here, are struggling with relationships or whatever it is. And you look around in this, in this congregation right here, and you see other people being blessed by God in the same way that you would want to be blessed. Be cautious and understand that you're part of a family and you rejoice with that. And you, you thank God that He has shown favor to them in that way. See, do you see how all these practical ramifications come down of us being part of a family and the responsibilities that we have? It's very easy for us to isolate ourselves or to come into the doors here, sit down, sing a few songs, listen to the guy talk for far too long, get up, and then go back to your life. That's not family living. And my prayer and my passion is that when you come here, you come and you're, you're part of a family. And if you're a guest with us, that, that you sense that. And as we grow together, we understand that living in the context of, uh, of the people of God, we live in the context as a family. It says we're in Christ there. I, I don't want to take much more time with this point here, but there's the idea of union with Christ. Christ is our older brother. Understand that facet, that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is your older brother, the Scriptures say. And so we live in that context. And so what we do is, is we follow the example of our elder brothers. Faithful family members are, we, are willing to inconvenience themselves to meet the needs of each other. My brother has done so much for me in my life, and, and, and I've often thanked him for it. He said, hey, this is what brothers do, right? And that's what families do for each other. And so in this context, be willing to inconvenience yourself for each other because we are part of the family of God. We're the people of God. Faithful family members welcome additions to the family. It brings joy to a faithful family member when the family is extended. We are not a club, and so it's easier for us to, be, to feel safe as we, a church gets to the point where you have your select friends, and, and then you've got that group that you really like, and, 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 then, and then it's like us four and no more. And, and I'm, I, just, I just want to obliterate that because, because the family of God welcomes additions. Just like your family welcomes additions, particularly you grandmothers out there. I've never met a grandmother that was disappointed when they had a new grandchild. I've never met a, a grandmother who said, oh, really, another one? They totally forget about their sons and their daughters when they get grandkids. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> now, I'm teasing here a little bit, but, it, but the point is true. We welcome additions, right? And so when God brings people here who are from different backgrounds, and my goal, my, my, I'm telling you, my prayer, as this is my first Sunday here preaching as your new pastor, I, I, my goal is to look out and see people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I want to see a multi-ethnic church. I want to see people who are broken and who are coming in and, and, and who God is saving, whom God is changing. I don't want us to be just this one same group here, monocultural. And so we welcome additions. And what that means is people are going to come. And people are going to come with different backgrounds and different ideas and different uh, experiences. And, and we're going we're gonna to have to grow in that. But the family of God, we welcome additions. 
And so we look to see God's name be made famous here in Verona in the Madison area. And so first of all, as we go through this text here, my first point this morning was the, the, the people of God live in the context of a family. Moving to the second point, the people of God live in the context of grace. This is the cause. He says there in verse 2, he says, grace to you. Again, he writes that in most of his letters. But don't let that pattern diminish the importance of it. If someone does something intentionally every time, it's probably because there's a purpose for it. And he wanted the people of Colossae to know that he, he wanted them to, to live in the context of God's grace. And a conscious awareness that their every moment, every breath that they took, every hour of their day was in the grace of God. You know what grace means? Favor that's not deserved. And everything that we have from God is, is not deserved. And everything that we have can be traced back to God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul then reminds the Corinthians, he asks the question. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? I mean, think about this. Everything that we have, our talents, our abilities, our possessions, our houses, our cars, everything we have, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, everything that we have comes from the grace of God. And we need to live in that conscious reality every day. Because when we live in that reality, we will not make idols of those things. But when we think they're fruits of our efforts or we think that we deserve them, that is when idols start to be built in our lives. And so we are to live in this conscious awareness of grace in our lives. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 says, Through Him we also have obtained access by faith, listen to this, into this grace in which we stand. Every moment of our lives is in, as the people of God, are in the grace of God. And there's a great application here. Since we live in God's grace, shouldn't we be seeking to develop a culture of grace around us? The more you're around me, the more you're going to hear me say that phrase, culture of grace. That's a passion that I have, that I, I want the halls of this church I want this room to just symbolize a culture of grace. And this means that we are good stewards. And we often think of stewardship as in possessions. And, you know, we don't want to stain the carpet here, which there's a stain right there. But we don't want to, we we don't want to, we don't want to mess this up because we want to be, we want to take care of what God's given to us. And that's great. But we, but first, before people, we are stewards, before property, we are stewards of people. And God has brought people here, and so, so we need to minister to them, and we need to minister in this idea of grace, in this culture of grace here. Our goal, we could see a goal would be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Take your eyes and scan over to 28, please. It says, Him we proclaim. This could be a goal of ours. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, mature in Christ. So he says that they're, they're warning, they're teaching everybody. That's their goal is to teach them so they would be presented as mature. The best teachers are those who make their students feel safe. 
The students feel safe to admit that they don't understand something or they feel safe to ask for help. Is this church, do we have a culture of grace here where someone could just say, I don't get it, I don't understand, or I'm struggling with this, I, I can't get past this sin. Or what, Is there a culture of grace here where they feel safe to do that? Or, or is there a situation here, a culture where people have to come in and they can fight on the way to church and then, and then they get to church and then it's like, okay, I, I, I got to put my spiritual face on. <laughs> How you doing today? Fine, bless God. You know, nice weather out. Praise God for that. Amen. Amen. I'm not saying we wear our, our feelings on our sleeves all the time, but what I am saying is I want a culture here where if someone asks me, Jeremy, how are you doing today? I can say, you know what, I'm struggling. And I don't want people to say, and you're a pastor? Brothers and sisters, I struggle. Brothers and sisters, I need a culture of grace here. You need a culture of grace where we can help one another and we can feel safe with one another, and we can, we can love on each other, and, 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 we can, and we can build one another, because the, the goal we saw was in, in chapter 1, verse 28, turn the page and go to chapter 3, and we see our background. In chapter 3, and verse 5, Paul tells the Colossians, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says this, in this you too once walked and were living in them. He says, your background, you struggled with these things. And you, and you, you continually struggle with some of these things. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is let's develop a culture of grace because the people of God live in a conscious reality of the grace of God. And if you and I live every day knowing that our breath is given to us by God's grace and that we stand where we're at and any spiritual growth that we have is because of the grace of God, if we understand that we are going to be much more patient with people, we're going to be much more loving to people, and we're going to, be, we're going to help people. Once we were lost... Once we were enslaved, we stumbled and we fell. We had no hope of success. One of the best illustrations of this, and I got a video for it so the guys can get this ready. One of the best illustrations for this is a man by the name of Derek Redman. I don't know if you remember Derek Redman. In 1992, in Barcelona, he was favored to win a gold medal. And things didn't work out the way he thought they would. But I want, to, I want you to see what, what I hope to be um, a culture of grace here. Are we ready to show the video? All right, go ahead. I love that story because Derek's father busted through the security. He, he didn't let anyone stop him because he wanted to help his son. We need to be a place where we help each other hobble across the finish line. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. There's going to be people who come into this, into this congregation here. And, and, and they're going to be struggling with sin. And they're going to be struggling with some things in their lives that they don't really know how to handle. And we need to be able to come alongside. And we need to, we need to bust through that security of protocol and, and judgmentalism. And we need to put our arms around people and help them limp across the finish line. 
There, there's going to be someone here in our congregation, someone who we probably respect, and I don't have anything in mind, so please, don't, don't, don't let your minds go towards any type of conspiracy or any type of, uh, of thought that I'm alluding to something, because I'm not. But there's going to be, I've been around church, I've been around Christians long enough to know that there's going to be someone here in our community over the next several years in our church that is going to stumble and is going to fall. And we need to be a congregation that we are gracious. And we don't wink at sin. We deal with sin biblically. But we bust through security. And we get their sweat on us. And we get their dirt on us. But we put our arms around them and say, let's finish this together. We need to be a culture of grace here. Please be gracious. I will seek to be gracious, and you please be gracious to me. And, and as a family, we will be gracious to one another. Derek's dad didn't care what everyone thought. The officials tried to stop him. And they, he said, no, that's my son. And our Heavenly Father will do that with us. But it was interesting, in, second, our, our, in, in the discipleship hour, our attention was brought to 2 Corinthians. And, and Paul said that God comforts us. But how did he comfort him? He says that he comforts us. God, God's the one that brought the comfort. But he brought it by bringing Titus. God brought comfort to people through the means of another person. And God, we want God's comfort to be brought here. I, I hope that one day, I, I hope that the, the people who are struggling in sin, in prostitution, and pornography, and, 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 and whatever the situation is, I hope that they can come with their scars and they can find a culture of grace here that we will be God's comfort to them, much like Titus was the comfort to Paul. And so, as Paul was writing to the Colossians, he said, live in the context of grace. Everything we have has been given to us from God. God's been very merciful to us, very gracious to us. And so therefore, we must let grace rule our lives. The final point this morning, in the last five minutes I have, is that we must live in a culture of peace. This is the effect. If grace is the cause, peace is the effect. We can only have peace because of God's grace. And what we see here is an allusion to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, that we have peace with God. And, and so what Paul is saying there is he's saying, live in a way that you know that you have peace with God and, and understand and worship God because of that. that. That you, you, I'm speaking to every one of you here, okay? You, you were a sinner. You are a sinner that demands or deserves the wrath of God. And I deserve the wrath of God to be just poured out in force on me. But I enjoy, because I'm part of the people of God, because of His grace, I enjoy peace with God. Have you ever had a relationship where, where you've offended someone, and maybe it's your wife or your husband or your mom or your dad for you kids, or, or whatever the situation is, and, 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 and you felt so, so bad for what you did, and you just wanted to know that everything was okay? Have you ever looked at someone and just trying to read them after you've apologized, and, and you're trying to read their face to say, are we okay now? 
With God, because of Christ, we're all okay. I don't deserve that. I deserve the wrath of God, but we need to live in this context of peace here that Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Later on in the letter, in in chapter 3, I think it is, it says that we are to let the peace of Christ rule us. I mentioned Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a minute, we're going to end the service by singing Jesus. Thank you. And I want you to pay attention to the words, Once your enemy now seated at your table. That's the peace of God that you enjoy. We need to live in this context of peace. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, is peace, love, joy, peace. That's an evidence that, that, that God is at work in us is when we have peace. And let me just make some quick application to this and then we'll be done. A quick application is this, is that, that because we are at peace with God, our eternal state has been, been made whole and made right, and, and, and God, our Creator, whom we offended by our sin and just the sin that's inside of us, that, 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 that now we're at peace with Him. And because of that, we really can be anxious for nothing, according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. We live in a culture where there's a tremendous lack of peace. Today, Michael Jordan turns 50 years old. I uh, grew up watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I would videotape him and, and try to mimic his, his moves and uh, was uh, sorely disappointed when I watched my own videotapes later on. But in my head, I was soaring through the clouds like Mike. It's been 10 years since he played the game of basketball. You know, he still makes about $80 million a year, according to one report. His net worth is around $650 million. Nike still makes shoes every year. He hasn't, he hasn't laced up shoes to play basketball in 10 years, and they're still making shoes every year with his name on them. However, there's a tremendous lack of peace in his life. I just read a recent interview, and he, he asked the question. He said this, he says, quote, How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this? He's talking about basketball because he's the owner of a basketball team that has the worst record. He says, consuming me. He says, how can I, how can I enjoy the next 20 years with, without so much of this consuming me? He asked, sitting behind a desk as his cell phone buzzes with trade offers. And listen to this. He says, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? There's a man who is struggling to find peace. And I pray he finds peace with God. And only through Jesus Christ. But we live in a culture that, where peace is a foreign commodity. We also live in a culture of fear. Although we may be experiencing a, a heightened level of fear and insecurity around us, if you, if you listen to the news at all, you would think that the world's going to end at any second. But you know what? I mean, it, the world isn't any more dangerous now than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. The type of danger may have changed in general, but, but it may have changed, but in general, we are living longer and healthier uh, uh, lives than ever before. The media loves to promote fear because, I mean, that's one of the things that sells. You know, we, we, we often say that sex sells, but fear sells, and that's one of the reasons why fear is used so much. 
I mean, consider a recent interview, uh, uh, it was a few years ago, um, a story on 2020 by Barbara Walters. I just want to illustrate this real quick. The, the story was about uh, 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 the problem of patients catching on fire on the operating table when a surgical instrument ignited the oxygen from the mask. The very thought of this causes our anxiety levels to rise. And seeing the scarred face of just one victim magnifies our fear. The story gives the impression that this is a danger that can happen to any of us, yet this tragedy happens only once out of every 270,000 surgeries, which is about 0.0004% of the time. The likelihood of this happening is minuscule, yet we are told by Barbara Walters that this happens, quote, more often than you might think, end quote. A claim that seems frightening and probably true, but only because none of us, or most of us, were unaware of what happened, that this happened at all. The story creates a false sense of danger as a, 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 a false sense of danger in the marketing of the program. And politics use fear as well. I mean, during the election cycle, uh, you know, if you vote for one candidate, uh, every murderer is going to be released from prison. If you vote for the other candidate, every drug dealer is going to be released from prison. So pick your poison. You, know? you get that feeling. You remember back in 1988 in the Dukakis uh, uh, ad, the, the notorious ad that says, if you elect Michael Dukakis, murderers like Willie Horton will roam the streets. That was a literal ad in 1988 for George Bush Sr. The church also promotes fear, unfortunately. A false understanding of the practice of church discipline has actually made confession an impossibility for many people in churches today. Many people live their lives under the cloud of what if? Or are we protected? I'm all for wise living, but we can't live in fear. If we're at peace with God positionally, why do we fear so much? And there's, there's so many times where, where our decisions and our thinking is ruled by fear of, okay, this may happen or that may happen. And look, I, I, I'm all for taking precautions. Please don't misunderstand me. I put my seatbelt on. But you know, I, we can't always live our lives in fear, though, of what someone may say or what someone may think or whatever. Because that's not reflective of being at peace with God, is it? And so as we live our lives at peace with God, we need to understand that we live our lives not based by fear. We're told not to fear. We're told to trust Christ. In conclusion, let me say this. As the people of God, we are to live in the context of a family. In this family, we love and care for brothers and sisters as we follow the example of our elder brother, Jesus of Nazareth. As the people of God, we live in the context of grace. Do we live in a conscious reality of God's graciousness? Are we building a culture of grace here at Memorial? Are we a place where people feel safe to be transparent with their faults and their struggles? Are we a place where we help people limp across the finish line? Are we, as a people of God, are we at peace or do we live in worry and anxiety? My prayer is that here at Memorial, that we are a place where we are part of a family. We live in light of God's grace and therefore consciously seek to promote a culture of grace. And I pray that we are characterized by peace. Paul told the Colossians, grace to you and peace from God. You have been shown God's grace. Do you possess the experiential peace that is positionally yours in Christ. We worship God because He really has been gracious to us and He's given us peace. A proper way to end our time together this morning is to sing, Jesus, thank you. So let's stand together. I'll pray. Musicians will come. Father,
I do pray that we'd be a cult, that we'd have a culture of grace here and peace. I pray that we would live as part of a family of God. And Father, if there's someone here today that is not in your family, that this is all foreign to them, convict their hearts, I pray that they would have the courage. Please give them the courage to, to speak with one of us. I would love to talk to them. There will be no judge, judgment. There, it would be love. And I pray that you give them that confidence, confidence and that assurance that they could speak to one of us and say, I don't know what this means to be part of the family of God, but I want it. I pray that your spirit would, would give them the ability to do that. And for those of us who, who, who are part of your family, Father, may we live like it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. And may we live in the context of grace and peace, much like Paul told the Colossians to live, to live in grace and peace. Now, Lord, we, we just want to say, as a corporate body, thank you. Once we were your enemies, now we've been seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.